My name is Fanula O'Connor. I run a company called Weevolve. What we do is help people change at work, same way a coach does, but we do it for whole organisations. And when I say we, it's not actually people, it's all done by technology. A lot of the times that we think about people and tech, we think of cold, hard, evil tech and lovely, warm, capable people. And there's some truth in that, but like all things, it's a bit more complicated. 17 years ago, I set up a tech business to help teachers understand their pupils better. A piece of feedback from a very early user was, I loved it, we felt great. And then he said something really surprising. He said, I loved it because it was a computer, not a person. And the computer has never told me I was stupid. That shocked me. I thought, what? A computer is better than a person? And over the last 17 years since that experience, I've been trying to work out what actually does technology do that can help us be more human? And what are the ways that we as humans can maybe help technology be more itself and more fully itself? I always have quite a lot of trouble when people ask me, where are you based? Or even worse, where are you from? Right now, I live in Paris. My company is in London. My biggest clients are in other cities around the world. I think of myself as very, very European. I was talking to somebody yesterday, we were talking about nation states, and she said to me, well, where did you grow up? And my response was, well, where I grew up is irrelevant. She repeated the question, and I answered Northern Ireland during the Troubles. She was right, it's not irrelevant at all. I think quite early on, I started thinking about issues of power and nations and how people work together or don't how you can understand that but even more what do you do when you're in that situation when I think about power it's very easy to think that the biggest person in the room is the most powerful that the richest entity is the most powerful that is true under certain circumstances but not often in today's world I think we're living in a world where there are centers of power that we used to think of like a lot of nation states that actually are not managing to control power now. Economic power is being shifted to a very small number of actors who are not always totally controlled by those states. We all think of the big data companies. I think there's a threat in those big data companies. First of all, they don't employ very many people. I think the three biggest companies in Silicon Valley today have got a greater capitalization than the three biggest industrial companies. They employ one-tenth of the workforce. Then you take that up to the ownership of those companies and you're talking about a very, very small number of people. Also, their assets are mobile. A car maker in Detroit cannot suddenly pick up its factory and dump it down in the Cayman Islands. With information, it's the work of seconds to make that transition. So I think it's actually no wonder that so many of us in democracies today, in Western democracies, look at our leadership and are either scared that our leader is going to be replaced by somebody who is going to lead to a narrower world and a world that has less of the things that we love and care about and feel we belong to, or maybe even that those of us who feel that's already happened. I think that's a reflection of some way in which the nation state is not working today. Although when we think of power, when we think of how do we manage the coming challenges in the world, we naturally think of nation states, of governments, of corporations as they used to be, I think we've got to start looking for new models. If the power structures we always thought work don't, what does? What I've really seen is 
a very interesting combination of people working together. It's people working together in ways that are not traditional hierarchies. They're not even what we think of as traditional teams. But they are groups of people that are very motivated by purpose. They use technology to inform all of them. And it's quite interesting how they use the information that technology gives them. They use it as a basis for discussion. Everyone shares their understanding of the data. It's very easy to think as soon as we can collect all the data, we just run it through a clever machine and the answer pops out. I don't think that's how knowledge works. It's definitely not how data works. It's really dangerous. You can get all kinds of correlations, all kinds of patterns that look amazing, but they just happen once. They're not repeatable. They don't take us to the next stage. So these teams or groups of individuals, they take data, they together talk about what does this mean and what can we do with it. And also, they apply that same process to themselves as individuals. What's their role? This only works for quite small teams, maximum about 12 people. And you need to devote a lot of time to sharing, to conversations, to exploring. A general principle that works in those teams is that every individual has power. Every individual makes decisions, even on things we think of as dangerous, such as salary levels, such as what your job's about. But, and this is where the team bit comes in, you have to discuss it with other people before you reach your decision. In South Africa, a few years ago, when you had the big transition at the end of apartheid, when they were setting up Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Desmond Tutu writes in one of his books that they thought, should we insist on reconciliation? Should that be a scripted part of the process that first of all there's an exchange of truth and then there is a reconciliation process? He actually talks about himself thinking that that was probably the way to go. And he was talked down by a group, went with the group decision, and he said, that's what made it so powerful. He said, almost every time, once the truth was said, there was reconciliation because people chose it for themselves. And the dynamics of the group and the way that that process happened brought out their best selves. I think that is a lesson that we can use a lot in our own lives. We can see that same process with the election of Macron, where his teams, yes, they used the same data analytics that Obama's teams had done, but like Obama's teams, they worked in very diffuse cells. In French law, you cannot collect records on individuals' political preferences. But we have street maps. What they would do is they would go door to door. They weren't asking for people's names or any identifying detail. All they were doing was in the sector on the map, if somebody said, yes, I'm voting for Monsieur Macron, or yes, I'm voting for Madame Le Pen, they would just mark in that sector the tick or a cross. And what they got from that, that human contact, was a sense of where they actually needed to focus in terms of their election campaign. And also they got a lot of information about what the people of France really thought. If I think about leadership and why maybe some of these old structures don't work, something I think about more and more is fear. Leadership is terrifying. I think change is even more terrifying. And we don't often acknowledge the pain in change and the repeated pain. This is not a pain of a decision. This is the pain of enacting it hours, days, weeks, often years. What I have seen is that nobody survives pain alone and that the way in which people support each other and develop the resilience and the optimism, 
that not just helps you through the pain, but helps you to a better outcome. It's something we need to remind ourselves of, and especially when we're looking as leaders at our people, because when you're in the midst of the most acute pain, the last thing you can think of is reaching out to other people. And of course, that's the time when you need other people most to reach out to you.